Uh, we're going to be there in Psalm 127, uh, but we're going to be in a couple more places than normal uh, this morning also. So uh, I guess I'm asking you to have some amount of scriptural dexterity this morning because we're going to be in a few places. Um, but what I want to do just uh, in light of the fact that we're hearing from God's word is just pray that God would accomplish his purposes uh, in his word this morning. So I, I wonder, though, before we pray for it, do you, do you believe that? Uh, oftentimes it's easy for us to walk into a room like this, expect to hear the word, but because of the habit of it, uh, not really expect to glean anything from it. So if you would, in faith, just pray alongside of me that God would bless his word. Lord, you have spoken, uh, but Lord, we do not always hear. We are not always listening. Father, make us good listeners this morning. Father, we don't only pray that we would listen, we pray that you would transform us by your word. Lord, would uh, Psalm 127 have its way with us this morning, illuminating areas of brokenness and sin, but also uh, uh, enlivening parts of us to worship you uh, because of the wisdom that you have placed in the psalm. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen. So I do have a question that I want to start off with this morning. Um, I want to ask you, do you consider yourself to be a hard worker? Now, I have to kind of ask it that way, like, do you consider yourself? Because my guess is, is that most of us do, but not all of us are, right? So I'm asking you in some sense, like, do you think that, the, that you are with a little margin of error for the fact that not all of us have uh, an easy time uh, making lightness of work? But it is an important question, and it's not just an important financial question. We all know in some sense that there is some direct correlation, not completely direct, but some direct correlation in between just diligence and duty and hard work and uh, just financial stability, things like that. In fact, uh, you may know this, you may not know this, but uh, one of the most comprehensive studies shows that uh, if you uh, do three things in the United States, so not everywhere, not every place has this kind of opportunity, but if you graduate from high school, if you wait to have kids until you get married, and if you hold a job, any job, if you do those three things, that you will actually avoid systemic poverty. Like, if you do those three things, it would be anomalous for you to end up in poverty. And so we know that the question of, like, just hard work and duty and diligence has something to do with financial prosperity. But that's not actually the reason why I'm asking this morning. The reason why I'm asking is because it is not just a financial question, it's also a spiritual question. Why? How can I say that? Well, we get from the very beginning that God has made us to work. There, in Genesis chapter 3, we are told that we are actually placed in a garden to work it. We're there to actually tend to the things of the garden, to plant seeds, to name things. This is a part of why God made us, not just, before the fall, not just after the fall, but before it. It's actually, there's something good, there's something dignified, there's something godly about work. But not just work, rest also. So this really is actually a spiritual question. But we know from Genesis 3 that it didn't stay that way, that work was actually impacted by sin. So we may have been uh, meant to work, meant to rest, but the curse of sin comes along and promises us that there will be nothing but sweat and thorns and thistles for us in the midst of work. So it's good for us to work, but we also face the consequences of sin that not everything that we put our hand to will be blessed the way that it would have been. Now for a, a lot of us, we, we know that very, you know, 
intuitively. Like we've experienced that a lot of hard work doesn't go a long way. We know that other people do very light work and it results in great prosperity, great blessing. And so there are these like confusing hard things that come up and that arise out of the question of work. Competing kind of even with this idea of the brokenness of sin, we also see that in Ecclesiastes 2.24, Solomon, most likely the writer of the psalm that's in front of us, says that, there, uh, that a person can do nothing better than eat and drink, but then also find satisfaction in their own toil. That there's uh, the wise, one of the wisest men that's ever lived is telling you in the pages of Scripture, inspired by the Spirit, that there is nothing better than to just enjoy the toil that God puts you to. So there is supposed to be some amount of satisfaction that we are to know that this toil is actually, Ecclesiastes says, literally from the hand of God. God actually has given you work to do. So there are all of these kind of competing things that go into the way that we think about work. And so the question this morning is not if we work, everybody works. The question is, what do you work at and how do you work at it? What will be the fruit of that? What is the legacy of your toil? What are you working towards? Is anything that you're working towards going to last? All of us want the work of our hands to actually have eternal consequences. In some real way, we are all looking for a legacy of meaning out of the things that we spend our time doing. Psalm 127 concerns itself with these questions and then tethers you, not just ancient readers, tethers you to God's redemptive work. God is at work and he wants to bring you into it. I think that that's what Psalm 127 says to us. So what is it? If I could put it just in a statement, what do we want to get out of this text this morning? What I want for us to say is that beloved builders are blessed by a faith-building God. Beloved builders are blessed by a faith-building God. And I'm actually using that word faith-building. It's hyphenated. It's semi-made up. But we're going to actually explore what it means to be a faith-building father like God is. But in order to get there, we've got to admit that there is something kind of disjointed about this psalm. It talks uh, at the very beginning about work, and then it kind of launches into this idea of children being a blessing and reward. And so we get this idea that like maybe the psalm is just kind of uh, two separate things that are kind of intermingled or jammed together. It, It doesn't seem cohesive to us. What I want for us to do is actually see that it is. For us to put three different themes in the loom of the gospel and see how they are woven together. And the three things that I want for us to kind of look at is that all of us, at some point or another, labor at lies. That's the first point this morning. We labor at lies. But we don't want to stay there. All of us might labor at lies, but we actually want to be worthy workers. We want to uh, turn in, we want to actually exist as a part of God's work that he is doing, that he promises to bring us into, and we want to be worthy workers. And last, we want to take a look at the application of that, that we receive rest and a reward. So that's kind of where we're going this morning. That's the tapestry that we're wanting to kind of weave together. But the question really for us is, why is this in the Psalms of Ascent. 
You know, this psalm, uh, these sets of psalms, as you know, are kind of building into worship. They're kind of leading us up into a city of worship, to be there in uh, amongst the people of God's worship. The psalms of ascent are leading us into worship. So how does this psalm fit into that? Well, we've actually transitioned in theme. The last few weeks, we've had a couple of various themes. Now, we've got two back-to-back psalms that are known as more wisdom psalms. They're giving us something of wisdom. So if you're one of those people that heard God's call to pray for wisdom, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God who gives graciously to you. What you can do is actually ask God to teach you something of wisdom this morning in and through this wisdom psalm which we see is actually right there, written most likely by Solomon. There are a few people that disagree that think that it might have been David writing to Solomon or that it might be a psalm that was extracted from other writings of Solomon. But what we know is is that there is great wisdom in the source or the person that it was being told to was Solomon. Solomon was a king in God's people. He was also one of the wisest men that's ever lived. If you read through uh, his book of Ecclesiastes, if you read through his song, you'll notice that he is after something. He's after imparting some biblical wisdom to you, to the readers of God's word. But we don't just know that he was a wise king. He's actually a king that was at a specific place in redemptive history. He was the king that was actually charged with building the temple. I'm saying it that way so that you know and understand that when this psalm talks about building, it's not speaking into some vacuum. It's not speaking to a person that might think of it in general terms. It's actually speaking to a specific event. It's speaking to the building of the temple, which was King Solomon's privilege. So the question that we've got to ask is, how does it really fit in with the rest of these psalms of ascent? And what we need to know is that the worshiper has come up, he's gone into the city of Jerusalem, he would have been evaluating and seeing the city around him. He would have noticed that that city was vulnerable at some level, that there was walls, that there were turrets, that there were watchmen, but he's, they're standing there in the midst of the city. We're going to notice that he's not only in the city, but that he sees the house of the Lord, the temple. So when it's talking about the Lord building a house, it's talking about it on two different levels. It's talking about a temple, but it's also talking about anything that God might be building or anything that you might set your hands to build. And then lastly, it's talking about God's people, his family. There's a theme just mixed into all of this that has to do with inheritance. So let's take a look at the first point this morning, that we, all of us, are laboring at lies. Why do I say it that way? How can I say it that way? Verse 1, join me. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And then it, it repeats this word vain. It says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in what? Vain. Then it immediately starts the next sentence saying, it is vain. It's vain. Raising up early in the morning, going to bed late at night is vain if God is not in it. Now, it's repeating this word vain, but we might not totally come to terms with or understand even what that word means. What is vain? What what is vanity? How can he say this? And there's a surprising answer here. If you were to actually take a look at that Hebrew word and see all of the places that it's used in the Old Testament, you would not actually define it as vain, as vanity. 
In fact, we're actually very familiar with one specific instance in Deuteronomy 5.20 that says, you shall not bear false witness. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not bear a vain a vain idea, a vain promise. You should not be lying. What we understand here is that vanity actually has uh, this kind of uh, other ethos about it. Vain, it's false, it's worthless, it's lies. Now, now how does that seem to like mix into this psalm? How can we understand it as a part of this psalm? What is meant by saying that these things are vain. What he's saying is, is that we labor at lies. Now, now, here's the truth. I think that we actually all get this more intuitively than it seems to come out. How can it be that uh, this psalm is saying, unless the Lord builds it, those laborers who try to build it are laboring at a lie. Unless the watchman watches over the city and does not depend on the Lord, they are lying to themselves. We actually get something of that. How many of us in this room put our hands to things that will disintegrate, like before our very eyes. They're lies. We're working at a lie. We're building a relationship that's going to be broken. We're uh, maybe trying to build a business that's destined to fail. In some real way, in an eternal perspective, if you are laboring at something that God is not in, that he is not blessing, that you are not faithful in, it will waste away. You're laboring at a lie. You're laboring at something that's false. You're laboring at something that in eternal terms is worthless. It's a lie. Now that we've kind of got our arms a little bit around that, we have to ask what is meant by God building the house or God watching over the city, especially when it just goes on to say in this very same sentences that there are already workers, there are already watchmen. Does God physically build a city? Does he literally take one of the turrets and take watch over a city? And of course the answer is no. This is a matter of God's providence and will. It's using an example of God building something. It's using an example of him overseeing and watching over a city. It's giving an example there to teach us something of God's will and his providence. If God is not willing, if he is not providentially blessing, then what you are doing is laboring in vain. You're laboring at a lie. Unless it is God's will for you to build the house, unless it is God's will to protect the city, then those who make plans, those who toil mightily, those who lose sleep, those who prepare to protect are laboring at a lie. And they aren't only lying to themselves, their very actions are lying to others. How is it that we can be lying to ourselves and lying to others? The reason why is because we believe in the false notion of self-determination, self-preservation. When we go about the process of building something from the ground up, we're believing that we're the ones that are in charge of determining what comes out of that, that we are the ones that will actually build something and we self-determine it. When we look to protect something, when we look to protect our home, when we look to protect uh, people, when we look to protect a city, and we do it under our own power, our own, under our own desire to preserve, it is not the Lord that we are trusting in, it is ourselves. And that is a lie. 
Maybe you've gotten caught up in some of this and you're like, I'm not totally sure. I'm pretty, pretty staunch believer in hard work. Uh, I, I know that my dad told me that I needed to work hard and everything would turn out okay. Are you saying that my dad was lying to me? Listen, I'm not. It's a good thing to work hard. But how are you doing it? What are you looking to build? Is it something that is in accord with God's will, or is it something that you're trying to do on your own? Those who do these things are living without a reliance or rest, a dependency or devotion or faithfulness to a father. And I want to maybe describe it to you in a familiar story that you've been in, I'm almost certain, many times before. Um, It's Genesis chapter 11. It talks about the building of a tower. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people And they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they do, uh, that they propose to do, will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and left Uh, And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Now, let's be honest about this. In reading that very familiar story, it is very easy for us to look at this and go, why did God do that? They were building something mighty. They were building something great. Why would he come along and confuse their languages and disperse them over the earth? Why would they abandon what they had gone after? Isn't this kind of mean-spirited withholding of God? Here's the truth. God was doing what he needed to do to make sure that man did not only rely on themselves. He was saving them from themselves. Why is that important? is because laboring at a lie, you laboring at a lie, independent from God, depending on yourself, will lead to the loss of your life, to death. God does not want you to die, and he will come in and interrupt those things that you are trying to do without him, that you are doing faithlessly. The Tower of Babel was a lie, every stone a monument to making much of self. And so what I want to ask you this morning is, what is your Tower of Babel? It it may for some of you seem like the obvious application point, but I want you to go deep on that question. I want you to think of it over the next few days. Sawyer looked at me when I was telling her about this and she just said, what is your Tower of Babel? I said, 
man, just about everything in my life is something that is a monument to self. When you really scrutinize the things that you're doing, when you really peer down and take a microscope into the motivations of your heart, what you will inevitably discover is that even the things that have the appearance of being for others are oftentimes aimed at self. Even those things that we do in worship of God often have at the very core of them some comfort of self. When we really take a look at it, all of us are laboring at a lie. What is your tower of Babel? What are you, not God, building in your life? What is it that is taking you about the process of vain toil? What are you doing apart from God? What are you laboring at? What lie are you believing? Verse 2 says, it is vain that you rise up early and that you go late to rest, eating, consuming the bread of anxious toil. Here's why I read that verse after making all of these other points. It's because a lot of us, we read these verses about like building something apart from God and we just kind of go, I'm not doing that. But then I read a verse like eating the bread of anxious toil and you go, whoa. I feel that. I feel anxious. I feel fearful. I feel like I'm consuming things that are making me feel far from God and anxious. What is it that you're eating? What is it that you're filling your soul with? Is it rest and sleep? Is it looking at God's provision? Is it expecting him to go with you? Or is it trying to do things on your own? And all you're doing is consuming fear and anxiety. If you're a person filled with fear and anxiety, this is not the only way that you might be uh, experiencing the fruit of fear and anxiety. It may not be that you're uh, working real hard for yourself, but it is one of the primary ways. And you have a wise man in Solomon telling you that you need to be very concerned. So I wonder, is this you? And we've got to acknowledge at some level that that is a terrible life to live. Just eating anxiety all the time, eating fear. I see it in people. I see the lack of rest. I see the darkened eyes. How dissatisfying, how eternally void. And what we need to do is stop laboring at lies and become worthy workers. Worthy workers whose motto, in some sense, is just, no vain, no shame. Those words are just coming straight out of the text for us this morning. So what do we want to do? We want to be faithful, worthy workers. Faithful in God's providential blessing, looking to align our wills to the Father's will. Where am I getting that? Look there at the end of verse 2. What we're going to find there is that uh, there is a juxtaposition mightily here in the text that tells us that there is a huge difference between eating anxiety and fear for breakfast and sleep. Look at verse 2. We see that there is a given sleep that the father gives to his beloved sweet sleep and rest. I wonder which one is you. Do you experience fear and anxiety or do you sleep pretty well at night? And yeah, I actually do even mean like in a literal sense. 
I don't just mean like in like a, uh, an arbitrary, like, you know, uh, weird kind of like, are you a good sleeper? I mean, literally, do you sleep well at night? My wife is like the best sleeper on the planet. We can be having the best conversation, and if she's laying down, she goes to sleep. It's like marvelous. When we were dating, we would have like those late night like phone calls, and for my wife, late is like 10 o'clock. So we were like in college, and I'd be like, you know, trying to woo her and like impress her, and we'd be talking, we lived in different cities for a short time, and I'd be talking to her, and she would just go like quieter and quieter, and we'd have like these conversations, and then I'd talk to her the next day, I'm like, hey, what'd you think about this? And she was having like conversations with me in her sleep that she remembered nothing about. She sleeps well. I really just have to brag on my wife. Like, does she experience, like, anxiety and fear? Of course she does. Sure she does. But there is a trust and a faithfulness in my wife that lets over to just sleepy sleep. I mean restful, content sleep. And I wonder if you're that way. I'm not always that way. I have, I have seasons where I can sleep very well, and I have other, other times where it just I'm up at night, I'm agitated, I'm fearful, I'm eating that bread and it's keeping me up. I wonder which one you are. Are you the laborer at lies? Are you the worthy worker? He gives to his beloved sleep. Beloved builders are actually blessed by the faith-building father. I want to I go to one more place this morning. I want to go to Luke if you would, turn with me, because we're actually going to spend a few moments there. Luke chapter 8, if you will. And we're going to pick up in verses 22 through 25. This also is a familiar set of verses, but I want to attach this idea of rest and sleep and confidence in God's providence to his story about Jesus. Verse 22, one day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. Jesus just falls asleep on the boat. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went to him and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. We're going to die. And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Jesus, in the midst of lots of anxiety, in the midst of a raging storm, Jesus just falls asleep. What is that? Why is that there? I mean, so oftentimes we just read over things and we just go like, uh, that's just the way that it was. No, no, no. God had a purpose for telling us that he was asleep. When he wakes up, what is his response to these disciples who are fearful for their lives, who are filled with anxiety, who are wondering whether they will exist for even just a few more moments? He says, where's your faith? How can it be that Jesus is saying this? It's because 
Jesus knew that God the Father was not going to let the rescuer, the restorer, the redeemer perish on a boat by wind and waves. He had total and complete confidence in the Father's providence over him. But then he also had a confidence. This is not a confidence that we get to borrow from him, I don't think in a literal sense. But he had the confidence that he was able to just wake up, rebuke the wind and the waves, and they ceased. They just stopped. That's a kind of rest and a kind of confidence that I know nothing about. I imagine that most of us don't know anything about, but that's why we're given the person of Jesus. We're given him that we can have that kind of confidence, not in ourselves, but what does he ask them? Where is your faith? If you're filled with anxiety, if you're eating the bread of anxious toil, there is one, there is a person whom you can cast your confidence on. He is mighty, he is powerful, his will is providential, and he blesses the worthy worker who has faith in him. We are to be filled with faith in God's goodwill. We are to be contented, nestled, rested into his providential plan. And and this is, listen, there's lots of times that I stand in front of you and I give examples from my own life in terms of the way that I just fail mightily in the midst of this. Here's one thing this morning that I just want to like celebrate, honestly, by God's grace This is something that Sawyer and I have experienced. Are you the kind of person that like, uh, you know, just gets restless and anxious? Are you the type of person that enters into like different seasons just asking God for revelation? Like if you tell me what to do, I'll just do it. But you're like paralyzed in the midst of all of that. That's not been Sawyer and my experience. Our experience has been one of like total blessing. Personally, Sawyer and I have experienced uh, not spiritual kind of procrastination, but a true dead-on belief that God is sovereign and in control of our circumstances. Are there times where we lie to ourselves, where we're pulled away, where we're dissuaded of that? Of course. But over the course of our lives, what we've done more than just asking God perpetually, show me what to do, and being paralyzed in disbelief is just making a decision. To go out and to know and have confidence that God is sovereign over every step of our lives. To know with great certainty, not complete, but great certainty that God will go with us. And sometimes he will go there as a disciplinarian. He will uh, correct us and rebuke us and like bring us back into alignment with his will. And sometimes he will actually just bless the faithfulness. If some of you are just listening for like application this morning to this set of verses, here when God says, if you try to build a house without me, you're laboring in vain. What is, if you turn that phrase back in on itself, what is it saying? If you have faith to build, I will build something eternal with you. And, and I'm here to tell you, beloved, I believe that that's true. I I don't want for you to go the wrong direction with some of that. You can certainly misapply it. You can baptize really bad decisions in a pool of fake faithfulness, but that's not at all what I'm talking about. I'm asking, do you believe that God is sovereign 
Do you believe that he's in control of all things? Do you believe that he shapes you, that he disciplines you, that he brings you along and blesses you in the midst of his sovereign will, his good purpose and work for you? Worthy workers do. But worthy workers don't just have faith. They actually do something too, right? It's not just that if you just have faith, but you don't put your hand to anything at all, that God will bless it and then build it. He actually chooses and loves to bring you in to what he is building. So worthy workers still work. This is no divine, uh, divine disclaimer. This is true toil. God is looking for faithful workers. The field is ripe for harvest, but the workers are few. You, beloved, are called to be workers in God's kingdom. You're called to go out there and proclaim this great kingdom and help reveal God's kingdom, help him build that kingdom, help him reveal Jesus Christ's purpose in your life and in others' lives through evangelism. You're you're to be faithful. You're to be a rock. You're to be steadfast. You're not to be chaotic and thrown and torn about. You're not to be tossed by the wind. You're actually supposed to be confident in his purposes, willing to take the next step, willing to be dutiful and diligent and delight in the midst of great work that God is doing, that he is blessing. And so we are actually hard workers. How do we know that? Christians are to build the house. We're to build the house of worship. We're to build literal homes, some of us. We're to stand guard over cities. We're supposed to guard doctrine. We're supposed to protect the vulnerable. We're supposed to uh, keep and bless the widow and the orphan. We're actually supposed to be protectors. We're supposed to, and we have good work out in front of us. Christians are workers. We're protectors. We're nurturers. Christians also father families. Verse 3, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the, uh, sorry, uh, the heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. You, You see, this is not some disjointed psalm. These aren't two separate pieces of wisdom. What he's saying is, is that you build a house, you build cities, you watch over them, and you build families. That's the connection here. These things actually do go together. We are builders of families just like the Father. And and I think that this verse is actually put here so that those of you who think that to be a worthy worker, you have to have a job, a career, a vocation. What I want to beckon you into is that there is a primary institution that all people that God calls and blesses can actually be building. And it's called a family. And now I want to take a moment and just put an asterisk here. I know that there are some that hear that and say, I know or I am one of those people that can't physically build a family. Pay attention to what I'm saying here. I'm saying that Christians are to be builders of families. So yes, the institution of a family, having children, that's the primary thing here. But we're also talking about those people that we disciple into God's kingdom. We're supposed to be building a spiritual family. Some of us are called to actually adopt and foster into our families. Others of us are maybe single. We don't have that opportunity right now. What we're what I need to ask you is who are your spiritual children? Who are you sharing the gospel with? Who are you fostering? fanning into flame an ember of faith in their lives? 
All of us, every Christian, has the capacity to build into a forever, eternal institution named family. Yeah, that's, that's expressed for many, if not most of us, in a nuclear family. And that's, I think, the primary point of this text. But I also just want to encourage all of us that we can be fathers of families, family builders. And here's the great little thing here. I I really love this. I love that the Lord works this way. So many of us look out at society and the things that it values, and we think that in order to lead a meaningful life, In order for you to be a a big deal, you have to be a culture builder and write uh, songs and get on the radio or build a business and make lots of money. A lot of us think that in order to build something and to have a meaningful life, we've got to build something that other people look at and that is great. But here's the truth about family. This is the thing that I love about family. This is the creativity of our father is that everyone, rich, poor, blue, white collar, brown, white, it doesn't matter, wealthy, dropout doctor, urban, rural, doesn't matter. Family is one of the most valuable works you can do and it's available to all Christians. You, you can lead a meaningful, eternally meaningful life by being a faithful father by being a spiritual nurturer, by being a mother to other people who need faith fostered in them. I lack some of the power to communicate this this morning, but what I really want you to understand and to know is that you do not have to be a big deal in the eyes of this world. You can go about the process of building gigantic houses. You can watch over mighty cities. You can look to uh, father all kinds of things into existence. But at the end of the day, it will be tested and the Lord will determine its substance, its worth. And if it's not eternal, it will be burned up. But you have the ability to do something that lasts forever. You have the ability in Christ to actually lead a meaningful, rich, deep, consequential life. That's what I'm beckoning you towards this morning because I think that that's what Psalm 127 beckons us into. It says that we have an inheritance, a heritage. And a lot of times we tend to think of this in terms of like we give our kids an inheritance. But this verse says something altogether different. It says that children are our heritage, that they're the gift that we receive. That we actually get some idea that God gives us an inheritance, a legacy, and the best means of generational conveyance of values comes by way of the family. The family is the institution that you can actually give riches and blessings, whether monetary or otherwise, to the next generation. The family is so important. It's an institution that demands your attention, demands worthy, faithful work. It's so great. So here's the question that I've got for you kind of as we come up against uh, how the gospel kind of flows into this. What institutions are you building and protecting? For many of us, we've got to go, I'm not really doing all that much. I'm not building into an institution. I've never even thought of it that way. And what I would 
request of you is that you consider it. What kind of institutions are you building into and protecting? Who are you nurturing and discipling? Who are you sharing the gospel with? What are you stewarding? Are you a worthy worker? To which, at some level, all of us have to respond, no, not all the way. So what, what are unworthy workers to do? What, what are we to do in the midst of whatever conviction those questions kind of bring out of us? Of course, all of us labor at lies. We all fall short of working worthily, faithfully unto the Lord. So what is it that we need? We need one who is a completely worthy worker, who is completely faithful to the Father on our behalf, a faithful fulfilled promise when we are faithless. And of course, that is the fruit of the womb. Look back at this set of verses with me. It doesn't just say that there is like some arbitrary like, you know, uh, fruit of the womb and like blessing and reward and heritage. It actually seems to be using really specific language that's answered in the person of Jesus. I wonder if I could show it to you there. Verse 3 says, the fruit of the womb is a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior were blessed. Whoever fills his quiver full of these arrows. Verse 5 says, He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. What about these, these promises that seem to be answered, of course, in uh, no uncertain terms that children really are that blessing. They're not just bundles of cells that are able to be discarded. They're not just a burden of some kind. They are a blessing. This Psalm says that children are a blessing, and of course, that's its primary purpose, but ultimately, they're answering a promise, the promise of the offspring in Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember, like, uh, you know, of course, there, were, uh, there was this command for us to be fruitful and to multiply. There was this command for us to be fathers and cultivators and builders before the fall, but once the fall happened... God the Father tells the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the offspring of the woman. He will come and crush your head even though you strike his heel. What we see in the midst of this is a continued whisper for that one who is coming. The blessing, the fruit, the heritage, the reward from the womb is Jesus. Ultimately, this is also answered in Genesis chapter 22. You might recall that there's this man named Abraham. And he's told, I'm going to pick you out from amongst all of the nations. And I'm going to make these great promises to you. And then he has these two children. And he's told to offer one of them as a sacrifice. And he goes up and in faith does the work of nearly sacrificing him. And then God provides this ram. But then he makes this promise in the midst of that very confusing, very hard story for us to read and completely understand. He says, Because you did this, because you did not withhold your son from me, I'm going to bless you. Your children will be as numerous as the stars. Your children will be as numerous. Do you hear like language kind of in here? The quiver full of children? How is he doing that? It's because God the Father is the one that actually sends the arrow of Christ into the gate of this world. And, and, and crucifies their sin. It, it takes over the enemy's gate. 
There's this promise made to Abraham that says that he's going to have one that comes and that this one who comes is going to actually take over the enemy's gate. And here we see whispers in this uh, Solomon's psalm that there is one who's an arrow that is going to take over the gate. No shame for the father. And it's Jesus. Jesus is that arrow. Jesus is the arrow that the father shot at his enemy in the gate and then multiplied his offspring like the stars. Jesus is the heritage, the reward, is an arrow in the blessed father's quiver. So what does that mean for us? What does it mean for you personally? Here's what I hope that it means. I hope that it means rest. I hope that it means reward. I want for this, I know that we're going over time here, but this is like probably the, the psalm out of this whole one that I cut the most out of. They're just, this is dense, this is richly packed, this is something that I think we could spend all afternoon just dialoguing about and pulling rich application for. So I've only got two things left to say on it, and that is this, this should change our perspective on work and on family on what we are after, on what is meaningful in this life. First, the Lord builds eternal things by blessing faith-filled builders. If you are faithful, God will use your faithfulness to build eternal things, things that the enemy cannot take away from you. If you're wanting to live a life of meaning and purpose, do the things that God calls you to do in faith. Here's the terrifying part of that. If you lead a faithless life, all of those things are going to evaporate in front of you. They will not last into eternity. Live a life of confidence. If you take it upon yourself, if you depend on yourself, if you build for yourself, then you are not trusting the Lord and it will all be for naught. Everything will be tested by fire and your anxious toil, your long hours will produce nothing that lasts. If you want to have an eternal legacy, be disciplined in the faith. Pray in the faith. Work in the faith. Those who have faith in the Father will accomplish all his holy will. And guess what you'll be allowed to do? You'll be allowed to rest because it's not dependent on you. You're being faithful to put your hand to good things, but you're really relying on God to give the increase, for him to give the blessing. Do you think that that produces some amount of rest for your restless heart? Have faith and you will not be restless. That's the promise of this psalm. Secondly, and lastly, finally, those who have faith in Jesus' work, he promises to reward. Here, there's a reward from the womb. That's Jesus. But Jesus actually puts his hand to something also. Did you know that Jesus builds something also? He goes to the disciples and he says this thing that I know that you've heard before, but I just want you to hear it in light of all of this faithfulness. Jesus says, in my father's house, in his built house, in his forever home, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for who? For you. Jesus is hard at work. 
He's building a place. If you want to think of it this way, I'm not totally convinced. I'm not totally sure. I'm just, it's above my pay grade. I don't know how long it took for God to build everything in the universe. I think that there are faithful people that think that it was six days. There are other people that read it as poetry. I don't know. But what I do get the idea of is that God built things very quickly, that he actually said things and they sprang into existence. And yet Jesus has been building a place for you for 2,000 years, maybe 2,000 more. God the Father's house has many rooms, and Jesus is there preparing a place for you. Be faithful. Be a builder. Don't labor at lies. Trust that you are part of God's faith-building family. Let us pray. God and Father, your word is rich. It is dense. Uh, Lord, I, I worry this morning, frankly, that uh, uh, my too many words have gotten in the way of a grand glimpse of what you are doing. Uh, but Father, you are the one who sees us in the midst of our labor to lies, sends the worthy worker that we might partner with you. And Father, you are the faithful Father who builds mighty, eternal things. Father, we want to be with you in heaven. We want to see the things that you have prepared and that you have built for us through your Son. Lord, we want to be and participate now in the things that you're building. We don't want to live listless, meaningless lives. We want to have faith that even the mundane and ordinary things that we do are actually building into eternity. Father, you are so kind to allow us to do that. Father, I pray in your great kindness that you would um, help us this morning uh, to do that well. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.